the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Welcome to the podcast. Hello, Justin. Welcome back, everybody. How are you, Lindsay? Oh, this heat's really getting to me. I needed a real good comedy to wash off that grime a taxi driver, you know? And I am so happy that we're getting to talk about Waiting for Guffman this time. Yeah, I agree. As much as I love Taxi Driver, I just really, really <laughs> needed uh, something light to kind of, yeah, just sort of get that out of my brain. Yeah, yeah. And this, it couldn't have been better. I think you have to follow it up with a comedy, you know? Also, this particular style of comedy, too, is like just what I needed because this is a movie that is very heartfelt as, as it is funny. And also kind of following along in the way the taxi driver feels a little voyeuristic. This is we're directly looking in on something that's happening in this comedic documentary style. And going from the big city of New York to the very small town of Blaine, Missouri. How they depict Missouri, it feels true. Blaine, Missouri and Waiting for Guffin was all filmed in Lockhart, Texas. You could have easily fooled me. They really pull it off and they make Lockhart, Texas look like a rural town in Missouri. You know, we've been talking about doing a Christopher Guest movie for a while and we both love Best in Show and I think we relate to that movie a lot. But uh, since we were going full on Christopher Guest, uh, which we were also doing Picks of the Week, um, it seemed appropriate to do Waiting for Guffman because I think it is the main movie that most people associate uh, Christopher Guest. Really, the beginning of his lineage as a writer-director and doing these style of comedies. And of course, it stems out of Spinal Tap, which I don't know one person that doesn't know Spinal Tap, even though I'm sure that many are out there. But that inspired the way that the rest of Christopher Guest's writing and directing style would uh, would progress onwards. And honestly, I'm a fan of everything he's put out. I certainly have a ranking order, which I think we should rank maybe towards the end of this episode. What are our favorites in order? You want to do that? I, th- I think I can get that together. Yeah, I think we could do that. I do love The Big Picture by Christopher Guest, but just focusing on these films by themselves, this group of actors, uh, it seems appropriate. Yeah, we'll make that happen. We'll wait. Well, maybe when uh, after we do our uh, picks of the week, maybe maybe that'll be a good way to close out the episode. Yeah, so stay tuned. We could get in another fight, you guys. Yeah, we could. You got to hang around and listen for this one. But we've got a lot to cover here. Uh, We'll definitely get into Christopher Guest. We'll get into his style and how he shoots these movies, particularly uh, getting into detail with Waiting for Guffman, his working relationship with Eugene Levy, and this sort of cast of characters that he's been using over the years for multiple films. And we'll talk about the filming, the surprising things you might not know about how it was executed, and some of the most difficult things. And of course, we will get into how this movie fared, uh, the reception. Probably, I'd like to talk about some deleted scenes that were taken out. There was a heck of a lot of footage. We'll talk about the editing. Good Lord. Certainly a process to this film that might be unexpected. And then, uh, like I said, we uh, stuck with Christopher Guest for our picks of the week. Um, Lindsay, you chose For Your Consideration. I sure uh, did. Which, uh, based upon your... 
uh, fandom of that movie made me reevaluate it on my own. Oh, this is going to affect your list, isn't it? It is going to affect my list because I that was uh, I wasn't as big a fan of that one, but you really talked it up, and I really watched <laughs> it with uh, open eyes, and I I really appreciate it a lot more now. So thank you. And oh heck, and you're you're doing a mighty wind, right? Yeah, mighty wind, which is one that uh, that's another Christopher Guest movie that I didn't come around to on a first or second watch, but I've really mm-hmm. grown to love it so much. I'm going to save my thoughts on that for the end of the episode. All right. I do love it. I'll say that. As always, we'll round things out with our Murray moment. But before we get into one of these funny, funny clips from Waiting for Guffman, Lindsay, can you just give me your interpretation of what this movie's about? You know, I always love to give these breakdowns. Set in the fictional town of Blaine, Missouri, a theatrical director from off, 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 off Broadway named Corky, an eccentric man with stars in his eyes, seeks to create the best darn stage musical around celebrating Blaine's 150th anniversary. With his cast of aspiring actor townsfolk, Corky and the crew's desire knows no limitations. And when they receive word that a Broadway producer is coming to town to take in their little musical that could, that's all this ragtag group of Blaineans need to believe that they might make it all the way to New York City. It's a very, uh, very heartfelt story. It sure is. This one, I love it more and more with every watch. And I tell you what, I discover something new. That is not an exaggeration. See something new every single time I watch it. Yeah, there's so many tiny little details in this movie that can go unnoticed until you watch it multiple times. Mm-hmm. All right, let's go to a clip. All right, we'll be back. We'll talk about it. So what I'm understanding here, correct me if I'm wrong, is that you're not giving me any money. So now I'm left basically with nothing. I'm left with zero, which in which what can I do with zero? You know, what can I, I can't do anything with it. I need to, this is my life here we're talking about. We're not just talking about, you know, something else. We're talking about my life, you know, and it's forcing me to do something I don't want to do, to leave, to, to go out and just leave and go home and say, make a clean cut here and say, no way, Corky, you're not putting up with these people. And I'll tell you why I can't put up with you people, because you're bastard people. That's what you are. You're just bastard people. And I'm going home and I'm going to, I'm going to bite my pillow is what I'm going to do. Well, Christopher Guest in his later years um, would assemble a troop much the same way uh, John Cassavetes and John Waters did. They built up trust in a, in a troupe of actors that they used for multiple movies, you know, that they could trust and lean on and bounce ideas off of. Started with Waiting for Guffman and then eventually did four or five movies with these people in this style. But before Guffman, Guest had worked for nearly 20 years in the entertainment industry, whether it be writing, acting, or directing. And Christopher Guest in his career pre-Waiting for Guffman is just as fascinating as everything to come after it. We could do an entire podcast on that. I'm going to try to like skim over a little bit of how we got to Waiting for Guffman. So it's going to be more focused on that versus films that he did prior to Waiting for Guffman or his stint on SNL. There's a lot of history there. So depending on how much you know about Christopher Guest, it might come as some surprise that he was actually never part of any type of improv group. Many of his actors, whether they're in every one of his films or in just a few of them, predominantly they all come from some type of improv comedy 
troop. Whether it's Second City, primarily it's mainly Second City. There are the Groundlings and even the political satire group, the Committee from the 60s. So it is really surprising to me that Christopher Guest was never a part of this. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't connected somehow to all of these comedians that he was surrounded with. He certainly did start out, like Justin already said, doing writing, but all the while was making connections along the way. Like, it might come as some surprise to know that he and Michael McKean, when they were 19-ish, when they were really young, they were roommates and weren't in any type of acting group or anything like that, but were working on things together before they even knew what improv was. Christopher Guest said that he and Michael McKean would be taking the bus to and fro together and would be working on comedy bits and just kind of spitballing. Before they knew it, they really, they were cooking. They had something going, but they didn't know really what to do with it. So around about 1970 is when things really picked up for him. He and a friend of his wrote a couple pieces for the National Lampoon magazine. And in 1970, the Lampoon was just starting. And luckily, Guest knew someone that worked there, submitted a few pieces, and was eventually published. And I think it was in the third issue, so just right at the very beginning. And soon after, he became a regular staple at the Lampoon. And while his writing talents were definitely used in the Lampoon... He said, hey guys, you know, I have more talent than just this. I can direct, I can act, I can do voices, I, you know, I I can do a lot of things. And suggested trying to venture out, venture beyond the magazine. And that's when the National Lampoon's Radio Hour began. I'll go into that a little bit later in our Murray moment. Um, But that, man, that just by itself is, is a whole segment. So I'm not trying to skip over anything or minimize any part of Christopher Guest's history. There's just a lot there. So getting involved with the Lampoon and the National Lampoon Radio Hour meant that you were also going to start being involved with people in improv groups like Second City. And eventually, and this is, you know, we're still talking about in the 70s here, those incarnations and the careers of all of those people involved, you know, skyrocketed. So Christopher Guest might not have been involved in these various improv groups. He certainly knew a lot of people involved. And eventually, Second City TV, which was the Canadian version of Saturday Night Live, that was on for for quite some time, not obviously as long as SNL is still on television, but that was where Christopher Guest first saw Eugene Levy and really became kind of smitten with what the guy was doing on Second City TV and just thought his impressions were wonderful and his work was something that he really identified with. But strangely, they hadn't worked together. And even though there was a lot of crossover between Second City Toronto and Second City Chicago. Now let's speed up a little bit. We'll go back to Eugene Levy in just a second. But the original idea for Waiting for Guffman came when Christopher Guest was seeing one of his kids' plays of Annie Get Your Gun and noticed that it was so funny and sweet that these kids were taking the play so seriously and became overwhelmed with the idea of, man, this would make a really great movie of putting adults in the same position. This whole idea of the discovery delusion. And I don't know if there's anyone out there that's listening that did high school plays or anything like that. I certainly had that delusion. I, I did high school plays. I, I feel Waiting for Guffman on, on a level that is so much deeper than just as a movie. That discovery delusion is completely real. And that's what Christopher Guest saw 
and where the nugget for this movie came from. So as this idea was beginning to be formed, I believe it was around about 93, where he had just completed filming Attack of the 50-Foot Woman with Daryl Hannah. And that was a success for HBO, but it was also a giant production. And it was something that while Guest succeeded doing this film, he was much more comfortable with smaller productions and kind of wanted to go back to that. So in talking about this idea that was being worked over in his head about doing a play that people are taking very, very seriously and thinking that they can maybe get famous off of doing some local play. He's imagining this concept and mentions it to his wife and says, man, Eugene Levy would be someone that I would really love to write with. And you might not guess he's not the most extroverted person considering what he does, but he's not really a go-getter. So he mentions this to his wife, Jamie Lee Curtis, and she says, you need to just contact him, just do it. And he actually does, where she's someone that's not afraid of contacting anyone. He's more of the reserved kind. He contacts Eugene Levy and says, hey, man, I've loved you on Second City TV. This is the idea I have for this. And originally, Eugene Levy thought it was a prank that Christopher Guest was calling him and, and bringing this up. But Guest knew that he was a skilled improv comedian. He was a writer and had also starred and co-written in 1984's The Last Polka, which was another documentary style comedy that was stemming off of Second City TV characters. So the connection to writing, to comedy, to doing this documentary style, and even with writing music, Guest knew that Levy could write music and all of these ideas began to formulate and kind of just this brilliant nugget was was created. And pretty much Guffman, they, they banged it out in what? I think it was just a, a month. But by writing this out, it wasn't what you would typically think of as a typical movie script. And Eugene Levy, his career's even stranger than Christopher Guest's, but his role in Guffman and his writing contributions, I think, can't be outdone. And I think it was brilliant how they started to do this. Now, they got a producer on board who was Karen Murphy, who did, uh, you might be familiar with True Stories or Drugstore Cowboy. She'd also worked on Spinal Tap and with the production designer from Attack to the 50-Foot Woman and The Big Picture, all of these people that had worked with Guest were very supportive. And then this questionable element of the script and what Guest and Levy chose to do, which was, I think it was a 16-page outline, but not have any dialogue and really like go into this trusting the players involved that they could improv this entire film. Songs aside, the songs, of course, no one's going to make up songs on the spot and music on the spot, but... All of the dialogue, for the most part, in this film is improvised, which I'm astounded by that. All of these movies, Waiting for Guffman and everything to come after it, that 95% of them are improvised, that's insane to me. These are some of the best improv actors alive. Each actor was given their character description and what they were doing in the scene and what their purpose was in this world of Guffman. What they were able to do is have liberty and what their character would say, but it did have to make sense for the character and for the scene. It couldn't just be this sort of arbitrary nonsense. It had to make sense to the story and scene. So they were adhering to an already 
airtight structure. They were just given the freedom to come up with their own lines. So the actors, you know, they did have something to pull from and they did have something to work from and get an idea of what they were going to say. It wasn't just sort of like they showed up on that day and they said, hey, you're the sheriff. And then (laughs) they just started rolling the camera. A lot of times there are scenes where the other actors didn't really know what the a particular actor was going to say. And so, you know, it made for a funny scene because the actors are reacting to a a different tone that the actor's taking them. Um, You know, we can say, for example, the scene where they're all outside of Corky's door, you know, after they find out that he's quit the play and they're all, you know, banging on the door. Corky, we love you. We need you to come out here. And then Parker Posey has that freak out and she like tells them (laughs) to just, just shut up, just shut up. And she like screams at them and walks down the stairs. And that, you know, their reaction of like, whoa, okay. And it's it makes for a funny scene and it works. It makes sense that this was everything to her. She like quit her job to do this, you know, and so it fits for her character. But like they didn't know that she was just going to start screaming at them. And so I think it's those great little moments um, by not knowing exactly what the person's going to say, but uh, just making it clear that, you know, this was like not just like made up on the spot. A lot of a lot of detail went into the storyline description of like who these characters were, where they lived in Blaine, what their background was, um, which was all put together by Levy and and Guest. And with this intermingling of having an outline, having character descriptions and the actors being ready to know exactly what their character would do in a particular situation. They were set up in some ways of like, for example, no one knew what the character of Corky played by Christopher Guest was going to look like. So when they step into the audition room and it's not like Corky looks like a freak of nature. He's just very eccentric look. I mean, it's his hair, really. It's the toupee on his head that that is off-putting, for for lack of a better word. And so that is going to immediately set some sort of a tone. Let's say with the audition scenes, too. They were told what songs to do, but the way in which the audition went, the execution, that was all thought of by the actor. And so you are seeing the reactions of Bob Balaban and Christopher Guest and the other judge. I apologize for not knowing his name. You were seeing their real reactions within their characters, and they're seeing it for the first time. So the way in which all of these factors come together creates a world that you have to have when you're creating a movie, but it's something that pushes the story forward and makes it seem very real and also creates a hell of a lot of footage for Christopher Guest to go back through and edit out what works and what doesn't. But these actors didn't have 20 takes either. I think max, it was maybe four or five, if that. This was a pretty tight shoot they shot in Lockhart, Texas for 30 days, which is, even by indie standards, it's a pretty short shoot. And they knew that there was going to be a lot of footage because improv lines and some stuff was going to work, some stuff probably wouldn't. The play section of the movie, they filmed a lot, so much of them actually performing the play Red, White, and Blaine. And so they ended up shooting 58 hours of footage that they were going to cut down to a 90-minute movie. So a lot of decisions had to be made. Luckily, it's a documentary style, so you can do cutaways and things that normally wouldn't fit in a narrative film. Editing flow structure wouldn't work. But it wasn't very arduous editing process, uh, taking 18 months to edit, like a normal movie taking two months to edit. Uh, granted, 
all documentaries take a long time to edit, you know, because generally they have way more than 58 hours of footage. I mean, yeah. some documentaries yeah. take like three years to edit. Since they had a story already written and everything, but they still had to really, really figure out like what worked and what didn't. And I think uh, it was Eugene Levy who said, you know, if if it doesn't push the story along, let's just scrap it. You know, even if it's like this great bit, you know, we need to make sure that it it looks like a documentary, but it's still flowing like a narrative and that there's a constant story arc that's happening and moving with these characters. And originally, one of the first cuts that Guest did, he actually took out Corky completely. He wasn't in the movie anymore. And it was the producer, when she saw that version, said, I think you should consider putting yourself back in. Which is, I don't even know what that movie would look like without Corky. It's bizarre to think about. (laughs) And, And it's kind of insane. They had enough story and footage that they could create an entire feature film version that doesn't include Corky, who's like the yeah. main character. But but I think it shows that in the writing that they made the movie just as much about the town of Blaine as they did Corky's character. I mean, this movie is about Blaine and the history of Blaine. So actually, I, I guess I could see it function without him if they used more of their footage that they had on the making, you know, how the town started and more of the townspeople. And in thinking about how this was filmed and how every take for each actor is going to be different, but we're talking about ensemble scenes where people are playing off of each other and not knowing what your acting partner is going to say. These people had to not crack up. Not only can I not imagine being on like that hard, but not reacting to the person that you're acting with in a situation like this, it just shows how professional all of these people were. It's just... Sorry, I keep going on about how crazy it is to me, but to do a movie like this that has such subtle humor, the type of comedy that this was was just something that really we hadn't really seen since Spinal Tap. Yeah, I agree. I can't really think of any other movies that really touched on this style of comedy outside of Spinal Tap. I mean, I can certainly think of many really television shows that I think sort of adopted this documentary style or mockumentary style as it's described as though I've come to find that Christopher Guest does not like the term mockumentary though even when you look up waiting for Guffman anywhere it there's there's a genre of mockumentary um I think he just doesn't like the mock part because he doesn't feel like he's mocking these people that he's you know doing these movies on these characters And honestly, when you hear him say that or when you know that, you view these movies in a completely different light. Not that maybe you didn't think that they were mocking before, but to know that he is saying, I was definitely not trying to mock anything. I'm really just trying to create a story about people doing the best that they can in these real situations where things sometimes just don't always work out the way you want them to. Because I didn't know that he didn't like the term mockumentary either. Learning that made it just so much more apparent of the heart and intention behind all of these films. And sure, there had been mockumentaries in this, like I can think of, uh, let's see, the one that comes immediately is um, The Ruddles, All You Need Is Cash, Sure, but all of that was scripted. There hadn't been something that was a comedy-style documentary that was primarily improv We'll get into the cast more in the next discussion, but this particular style of improv, too, doesn't to me feel all the time like they're improv because the characters are so rich and some of the situations they get in are so realistic. Christopher Guest talks about this idea of comedy 
as reality. That's the whole reason why he took the documentary approach is not to make it look fake in any way, but to actually make these characters seem more real than if this was a movie that was uh, written and directed in a narrative style way. And thinking him in those terms, man, it's just like, I totally get where he's coming from. And the relationship between Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard, the husband and wife duo who are travel agents, yet have never left the town of Blaine who have worked with Corky on many productions and they feel like, you know, there's, they're a cut above everybody else and, and pretty, uh, cantankerous with each other, but also, um, very full of themselves. And they have a particular moment where they're arguing at the restaurant, that's Chinese restaurant with, uh, Eugene Levy and his wife. And that scene feels very dark and very real. And it is funny because you're you're laughing because you've seen a couple do this where they're like trying to hold in their rage of each other and they're mm-hmm. kind of, but it's kind of all bubbling out in one night. And it's like when someone gets a little drunk and they get more real with you than you want them to. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's these identifying things that really come across in these scenes where it, they're funny because, you know, they're relatable and they seem real, but also the characters delivering these lines. It doesn't feel like this sort of off the cuff thing. It does feel very authentic, like it was scripted. Yeah, it's this whole idea of observing behavior and interactions that feel natural. That's something that is a natural progression of of how humans are. And Christopher Guest really took this idea of silliness framed by intelligence, meaning that all of these people believe in what they're doing and they believe that they're good. I'm not saying that they're not good, but when you take something and you have the character really believe in themselves, even when it's not the best that it could be, the comedy just, I mean, it just is there. It's its inherent. It just comes out. And in a lot of ways, so many of Christopher Guest's movies do this, but the perfect is meant to be imperfect in this for this movie to be real, to feel real. It has to be imperfect because that's how the real world is. The humor here, it's not being spoon fed to you. It's very much you are supposed to feel like you are part of Blaine, that these are your neighbors and you know this dentist, you know these travel agents, you know the girl at the Dairy Queen. It's supposed to feel familiar and making the movie this hybrid documentary style and using handheld cameras and this informality uh, type of setups, it removes the barrier between you as a movie viewer and what you're watching, you know? And man, one thing that I never noticed too and until just recently is we never see an interviewer. That, uh, that like blew me away when I realized that, that in Spinal Tap, Rob Reiner is interviewing them, or we see yeah. someone interviewing the band, but the interviewer has been removed here. This is just actors talking to a camera, which has been super popularized now in, in comedy. Every single comedy on television now is like that. Well, that's a generalization, but you know what I'm getting at. And there is a lot to be said, too, about Christopher Guest's idea of showing people's pride for where they come from, their hometown, utilizing the town of Lockhart, Texas, and like using real footage of one of their actual town parades. Every town has like a little parade. I mean, even there's a little neighborhood that I used to live in called Dogtown in St. Louis. I'm not being facetious when I say this. There are people that that's the biggest day of the year for them. You know, they there's people that work on that parade. They plan it, the people that are in it. And that's like... 
for if you if you're in that town and you're a part of that parade, that's like a huge deal. I mean, people tell you're like a minor celebrity, you know, in that neighborhood. So this idea of like shining a light, putting something like that, people's pride of their town, people's pride of something under a microscope, and seeing how that idea is like it's important to these people, and I think that that really comes across in this movie, and that's what makes it so endearing and what makes it so relatable to an audience and why we you know we're not laughing at these people making fun of them we're actually like touched by them being so inspired by what they do and also like you know you you come to love these characters and you do feel bad for them <laughs> when you find out that Mort Guffman famed playwright critic isn't actually there and coming to tell them that they did this amazing job and that Red White and Blaine is going to be making its way to uh, to Broadway before they know it it's so sad and It's something that is a sad reality within all of us, you know, with a lot of things, whether it's your job or a relationship or something like acting. We all have the desire to be perfect or talented in a particular field to make it. You know, this this idea is, is everything that's behind Waiting for Guffman. And when Mort Guffman doesn't show up, the cast is so crushed and you feel that for them. But at the same time, it's... Like they forgot that they just put on this amazing production for the town and everyone, all of the townspeople loved it. They got a standing ovation and they should feel proud. But the idea behind it, they lost sight of it. It became about this idea that was more grandiose than was reality. And speaking of that production, Red, White and Blaine, another thing that made it feel so earnest and so real is that it is pretty much the last third of the movie is the musical and the cast, the actors, the people playing the actors in this play really felt nervous. Like they were, um, they felt like they were actually putting on a stage production. And I think it does really come through from everything from being on stage and watching, watching professional actors act like they're amateurs is astonishing to watch but the backstage scenes where everything is so hurried and everyone's freaking out i mean that is the reality behind any type of theater production that people are are freaking out that the actors themselves were really feeling what the actors in the movie were portraying i think just adds this whole other like meta level to to this film to me it's a pretty bold move i mean uh, there's a large portion of this movie really the third act of this movie that we're just straight up watching this play but because we're so invested in the characters and we've grown to watch them rehearse and seeing how much this means to them i you know you're legitimately interested in just kicking back and watching red white and blaine (laughs) and you know, and this was a big part of uh, the the production for Christopher Guest. And I mean, they, they actually had so much of Red, White and Blaine in the movie that they had to cut two numbers completely out of the final cut. I can understand why, but I honestly, if they had a cut where it was like just the play itself <laughs> with all the numbers in, in, you know, as, a, as an addition to the DVD, I would totally sit down and just watch the, the play version of this movie. Oh, 100%. Me too. And the fact that shooting Red, White, and Blaine was two of the four weeks that they spent filming, I mean, that tells you how grueling and difficult that was for the cast. There's singing, dancing, 
I mean, everything was choreographed. That's the stuff that was actually scripted. That was the hardest thing for them to pull off. Absolutely. Well, let's go to another clip from Guffman. We'll come back. We'll talk about this zany cast, this uh, repertory group that Christopher Guest put together. And we'll also get into the uh, release and reception of Waiting for Guffman, which, uh, unlike Red, White, and Blaine, garnered uh, a lot of critical acclaim. You might be surprised to learn who wrote all the music to this film as well. We'll tell you. We'll find out when we come back. I think we have to work on the music a little bit more, but I don't want to make trouble, so I don't really want to do this in front of them, but I think... Where do you want to do it? Well, I think we have to sit down and make a schedule that includes some some music time, because I think Gene and I have to Why are you whispering? I'm right here, you know? Oh, I'm sorry. Do you want me to... Talk louder? Because I th- I think that well, now it would be... now it's too loud. You know, just talk like a normal person, okay? I think what they were doing was good. Well, to me, you yes, rehearse, you rehearse. You, you rehearse. get it perfect. You know exactly what you're doing. And then, and then you forget about it. Job. Let me pinpoint you. You said they learn it, they forget it, and that's okay. That's great. Well, they've forgotten it. But they never learned it. So when do they learn it? I'm just saying, when do we have it? But what I'm saying is, if they're going to forget it anyway, then what difference does it make? I mean, you see what I mean? It's just like, it's like one of those, it's like a, it's like a, it's a Zen thing. It's like, you know, you know, how many babies, you know, fit in, in the, in the tire thing, that whole, the old joke, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, you have a point. Uh, It's as you said, Lindsay, in the last discussion, Christopher Guest had quite a career before, uh, you know, starting up production on Waiting for Guffman. Uh, he had made lots of friends in the entertainment industry. And once he started kicking around the idea of doing Waiting for Guffman, uh, quite a few people were interested right off the bat. One particular actor being Martin Short. He was really excited about the script idea for Waiting for Guffman and asked Christopher Guest, you know, when when can he start shooting? And Christopher Guest immediately told him, you can't be in this movie, like, you're too famous. Like, I don't want any faces that uh, most people are going to immediately recognize because it's going to take away from the reality of how I want this movie to be portrayed. And that's pretty interesting to me because you can imagine he probably could have gotten quite a few name actors in this and probably gotten a bigger budget, but the movie wouldn't have been the same. And later on, some of these actors did get a little bit bigger, but I still think that they don't sort of overshadow the characters that they play in his movies, you know, like Parker Posey, you know, she's a bigger name now. And even Eugene Levy didn't get to do the last uh, Christopher Guest movie because you know, Schitt's Creek was taking off. And Fred Willard, who plays Ron of Ron and Sheila, Sheila being Catherine O'Hara, when he was cast for this, I think he was one of the first. uh, Catherine O'Hara was already on board. Eugene Levy, of course, was. And then when Christopher Guest asked Fred Willard, he said, I definitely want you to be involved with this, but I don't really want to use actors where people know who they are. So at first, Fred Willard was flattered, 
And then he was like, oh, I'm being picked because nobody knows who I am. You kidding me over here? But the thing is, is all of these faces are familiar. It's just boils down to the fact of Martin Short could attract someone just by having his name in, in the movie. He'd already established himself. Everyone else had been around the block forever and were definitely known within the comedy world. But all of these people wouldn't necessarily distract from it being an ensemble piece. Yeah, and some of these actors now that they've been in so many of guest movies, I really can't even imagine anyone else portraying these parts. But also Guest had to use actors who were very adept at doing improv because if you got somebody who wasn't used to doing that or who wasn't prepared, they could really waste an entire day or throw off the other actors. So he was also choosing comedic actors who had really great timing and who could come up with interesting and believable dialogue. And so many people come from improv groups. Eugene Levy, Fred Willard, Catherine O'Hara, and then even down to some of our bit players, just people that have a few scenes, Brian Doyle Murray, Don Lake, uh, Deborah Theaker. Let's see, who else was in second? Paul Dooley that comes up. He's the UFO guy. These are all Second City people. We also have Steve Stark. He's from the Groundlings. And then you've got people like Parker Posey and Matt Keesler who didn't really have an improv background. They weren't known for something like that. Like Matt Keesler, I know him from the last days of disco, but that was well after Waiting for Guffman. But Parker Posey was an indie movie queen at this point, and that was just beginning to blow up for her. And Parker Posey, even though she didn't come from an improv background, Christopher Guest said, you know, right away he knew he wanted to go with her and said she was, you know, one of the best at doing pauses. I didn't really think about too much, but then when you listen to, you know, watch her scenes, you know, you're kind of hanging on every word that she says because you're just waiting for her to finish her sentence, which it takes her so long to do. There's so many little things that each one of these actors does, whether it is a line that they come up with or something so small that you don't even notice it the first time through. And it was Christopher Guest pointing out the scene in which Catherine O'Hara and Fred Willard are doing their audition. And you see Catherine O'Hara mouthing Fred Willard's lines because that's something that an amateur actor would do in order to keep their place and know what the next jumping off point's going to be. But to think about yourself as an amateur actor in a scene, just thinking about the attention to detail that these actors had for these characters just showed how seasoned and how professional they all were. And, you know, I kind of want to spotlight Fred Willard, who passed away uh, just last year. He's such a strong point in all of these Christopher Guest films. He seems to play a similar character in all the Guest films, this sort of like buffoonish man who is always kind of like ribbing people, you know, trying trying to get a rise out of somebody, adding some sort of colorful commentary on the situation. But I think it's Guffman that he really, really drives it home, especially his needling with Eugene Levy uh, being a dentist, uh, you know, pun intended there, um, always doing all <laughs> these like dentist jokes. You also get the sense that, you know, he's very overbearing to his wife and very controlling and kind of thinks he's the smartest guy in the room, even though he's the most idiotic. He just does it so well. And it's a fine line where you could just be like, God, this guy's so arrogant and annoying. But I always get the biggest laughs from Fred Willard's roles in Christopher Guest movies. 
And I heard Fred Willard say that the idea behind Ron and Sheila went back to an acting team, which was a couple that he had when he was just starting out acting. And the dynamic between them was very much like Ron and Sheila and how we see them at home. He wanted it to be like that because that's what he envisioned like these people's home life being like. So that was based on people that he had known in his past. And I think certainly for other guest movies, I've heard Eugene Levy say the same thing about his character and for your consideration. I think a lot of these people are based upon actual experiences that these folks have had in their real lives. And so many bit players in this, but, you know, I wanted to kind of like single out uh, our favorites. Probably my absolute favorite character in this movie is Michael Hitchcock, who plays Councilman Steve. When I think Waiting for Guffman, the first thing that always pops into my mind is him going, we love you, Cargay! (laughs) His sheer excitement and enthusiasm for Corky. He's always has this like radiant beaming smile, just him talking about how the play is coming up and how, you know, he wishes that he could uh, be involved in it, but, you know, he couldn't take off work. And that was the only day that Corky held auditions, you know, and he's gone on to, to portray roles in so many of guest movies and these incredible uh, comedic bits. But to me, what he displays here is this sort of like effortless, heartwarming enthusiasm that really helps us buy into the character of of Corky, you know, because he has his cheerleaders. He has people in this town that are like, no, we're, we're happy that he came back to Blaine. We as a viewer see it as, you know, this failure that Corky came back with his tail between his legs, leaving New York and had to come back and, and teach drama at Blaine. But to a guy like Councilman Steve, this is like the thrill of a lifetime to have somebody who lived in New York is now back in Blaine and, you know, <laughs> is putting on this incredible play. And his every time he's on screen, is to me, it's charming, but it also just gives me some of the best laughs in the movie. I think he has a couple <laughs> of the best scenes in the movie. What about you, Lindsay? Who's your uh, favorite character cast of, of Waiting for Guffman? God, the five main folks are incredible. That goes without saying And Michael Hitchcock being over the top is absolutely wonderful. For me, I go a complete 180 as my favorite character in this movie, aside from the main five, is going to be Lloyd, Bob Balaban. That part actually was originally for Harry Shearer, who was unavailable, and Bob Balaban joined without hesitation. But man, that guy, I think I might have fallen in love with him a little bit. I I love him in every Christopher Guest movie. Of course, I love him as a director. I'm a big nerd for my boyfriend's back. Bob Balaban, his dry way of communicating his frustration and annoyance in such a straight way is one of the funniest things to watch. And I, I don't know how the man doesn't ever crack. There's really only one time where his character even smiles in this film. Actually, too, when he does a really good job at the at the end of conducting a piece, he kind of smiles, too. But otherwise, the man just doesn't crack. And his internal frustration with everything around him is the funniest thing to me. Well, yeah, and his is such a nuanced performance because really in, in a movie world, he's he's the villain. You know, he's portrayed as the <laughs> villain. But at the yeah. same time, you're commiserating with him because he brings the realism of the movie up a notch because 
you know, we're all kind of rooting and there's all this excitement about the cast and Corky's getting them all hyped up. <laughs> but Bob Balaban's character's like, you know, we really need to work on the songs and the music because they're not rehearsed and not everybody here is like singing in key. And he's not getting caught up in the whirlwind of like Guffman's coming to watch them. You know, he's more focused on let's actually try to put on a professional show where we're like singing properly and hitting all our marks. And isn't it funny the caliber of what the musical ends up being compared to the orchestral arrangement of Bob Balaban's character? Like, it, it is so professional. It is a professional orchestra that's playing the music for this show. It's so funny. And speaking of the music, um, at the question we posed before the break there, um, do you know who did the music for this movie? Justin, I'm sure you do. I do know. I didn't know if you're... <laughs> Doing a long pause so that uh, I was I was doing whoever's listening right now just shouted out the answer to to (laughs) nobody. We heard you. We heard you. We did. And you are correct. And you are correct. If you answered the members of Spinal Tap, that being Harry Shearer, Christopher Guest, of course, and Michael McKean, along with the unnamed player from Spinal Tap, who also wrote the music in that movie as well. David St. Hibbins. And I couldn't help but think about how the music is really well done in this film and how you have to, I think it was Harry Shearer that said, you have to write music in character as if you are these people in Blaine writing this music. So it can't be too amazing, but it it has to be good enough and maybe even one step above good enough, you know, but it can't be completely professional. So the idea of writing music in character was something I just hadn't thought about before. Some of the numbers seem, the musical numbers seem like, okay, you know, they're not bad, but then Stolboom gets stuck in my head all the time. (laughs) You know, there's like these certain particular breaks in the song that that are very like, you know, they have a hook and very catchy melody and the harmonies are coming in. It's a good song. And I I told you off the mic, I'm not afraid to say this on the mic. During a very sensitive time of the month for me, I might have been very emotionally affected by A Penny for Your Thoughts. I'm sorry, but there's something very sweet about that number. And it made me reflect upon, you know, high school performances that were so earnest and heartfelt. And maybe they weren't perfect, but it was the intention behind them. And A Penny for Your Thoughts, ugh. That one's going to get me every time. As lame as that sounds, it's going to get me every time. Yeah, you know me, whenever we're doing any movie with music involved, I always reach for the Spotify, and that's my <laughs> go-to work driving music. And Holy uh, crap, were you jamming the soundtrack? Uh, no, unfortunately, I, I don't know that they ever released a soundtrack, <laughs> but I was kind of hoping that there was you know, something available where I could just listen to the the songs done in some sort of way, but... I, do, I don't know that that was ever released. I'll look that up before we get to our final thoughts, and I'll, I'll see if I can find any info on whether or not there was any official soundtrack release to this movie of the songs from the play. Well, whether or not there was a questionable soundtrack release, the reception and release of this film could have been a little bit more. Originally, this debuted at the Boston Film Festival in August of 96 and shortly after was at the Toronto International Film Festival, but it wouldn't be released to theaters until late January, I think it was January 31st of 97. And really, it was only released, what was it? Was it like 50 or 300 theaters? It wasn't that many. Yeah, it was a very, very short run, though I do think that it had 
it ran for quite a while, like in limited runs from city to city, kind of that platform style release that uh, indie films would do where there was only so many prints, but like one theater would get it for two weeks and then it would get shipped somewhere, that same print. So by the time one theater would get a print, it'd be all like beat up because <laughs> it'd been to like three different locations. And the movie did not make back its budget. It's kind of not surprising, but again, you know, sometimes when this happens, it has nothing to do with the quality of the film. It is just simply the rollout of it and the marketing for it, or that maybe they didn't know how to market something like this. We've done almost 80 episodes, mm -hmm. and this always happens when we're doing a cult film where we, we have the same conversation about how nobody saw it and then yeah. <laughs> you know it, it came to video and then all these people saw it for some reason with this movie i don't know why everyone that i've always talked to about guffman saw it when it came out so it's just this is always one of those movies when i find out that it made no money and that it was like kind of not successful right away it's shocking to me because i've i've known so many people who are guffman fans and christopher guest fans that liked this movie but then i start thinking i'm like wait a minute best in show hit and that movie was probably one of the bigger successes for christopher guest and then mighty wind hit really big and by the time mighty wind hit i think people had gone back you know and like oh this guy did another movie you know back in before best in show and just kind of attaches to the lineage and you just think like oh yeah everyone's been with him since guffman but man really it didn't even make its money back at the box office you know for how small of a budget and I don't remember it, this being one of those big TV movies that was on television all the time, but people found it, and it's a very beloved movie, and I feel like Christopher Guest did what very few directors do, and they followed it up with not one, but two movies that kind of fit in his trilogy of the faux documentary style and all the same cast of characters kind of doing variations of what they started in Waiting for Guffman. And a very strong trilogy at that. Strangely enough, I remember the exact moment when I heard about this. My aunt and uncle said that they had seen it. So they had seen it somewhere in St. Louis and were just on the floor rolling that it was one of the funniest movies they'd ever seen. They hadn't seen anything like it. It made such an impression on me that when it was available to watch, I remember my mom grabbing it and... Um, yeah, I, I don't think I even knew what to make of it around that time. I knew that it was funny, but it also hit really close to home. So I saw the humor in it, but I also felt very seen at the same time, you know? It's a fun movie to quote. Oh my gosh, yeah. There's definitely quotable movies like Goodfellas and all that, but I, I feel like when you start <laughs> quoting Waiting for Guffman, people like perk up a little bit more. And that's when Blaine became the stool capital of the world. Oh, and that's, you know, when we got the big stool boom. <laughs> the big stool boom. It's wild to me that a lot of this stuff was just like off the cuff, but it's become part of like quotable film history, it's especially the Corky Sinclair, the end credit sequences where we're seeing where the characters are now, you know, like this yeah. epilogue of like after Guffman didn't come and after Red, White and Blaine's premiere night where all these characters went and Corky moves back to New York and uh, isn't just doing plays, but now has opened up his movie memorabilia shop. And he has like, a, you know, he's talking about having the, the remains of the day lunchbox. 
And it's one of the funniest. It's scenes. to me, and it's like this tiny little <laughs> moment, and it's the very end of the movie. So you're getting what I think, like, legitimately one of the biggest laughs, like at the very, <laughs> very end. And that's one of my favorite scenes. Uh, and it's wild to find out that was just the the scenes with Corky in that memorabilia shop. That was apparently one of the hardest things for them to do for waiting for Guffman. It was like securing all the rights because they had to go and contact every single person that he brought up, you know, so they had to contact Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson to get releases to do their characters for Remains of the Day. And they just sort of laughed and were like, yeah, whatever, you know, <laughs> to use it. But he said that, you know, when they're showing the big uh, character figures of like Anthony Michael Hall and like the, the Brad bobbleheads. Packers, yeah, the bobbleheads, Christopher Guest said that was kind of harder to get the licensing rights for that because the Brat Pack didn't really know uh, how they were going to be used. But eventually, you know, everybody signed off on it was fine. And they got a artist from Austin to design all of these sort of the action figures and the, the lunchbox. And it personalizes the universe in which Corky lives. I'm glad you brought up Corky's store because there was a little change that they had to do. There were a lot of things that had to be amended or switched around when they finally got in the editing room and maybe needed to do some reshoots or straight up change the ending for some things. And specifically with the store there, we understand it to be in New York, that Corky's moved to New York and he has this little niche specialty shop. Well, in the original version, he had actually set that store up in Blaine and it was in the middle of the movie. This wasn't something that was ending. Corky had already set up this shop, and it was more um, Wizard of Oz-themed, adding to that whole ambiguous sexuality thing that is about Corky. I, we didn't really bring that up, but man, just a quick mention, I love that that is not an issue, that it is a half mention of a wife named Bonnie that we never see, and... It's really on the audience that is inferring his sexuality, but it is never brought up or an issue. Uh, I, I love that facet. And to go with that, another thing that was cut out of the original ending was that Steve Stark, played by Michael Hitchcock, and Corky were inferred to be together living in New York at the end of the movie. But... Christopher Guest felt that it was unimportant to do that and that answering the question of is Corky gay or not was so irrelevant to the the movie as a whole. And again, love, love, love that decision. Some other things, not just deleted scenes, but uh, I thought was interesting to find out that in the original version of the script, they actually don't even do the play there's like a tornado because originally it wasn't in Missouri. It took place in Kansas and it was more tied into that Wizard of Oz theme. And there's actually a tornado that hits the theater. And you just I think the ending of the movie was like you just see the camera actually fall over on its side because the tornado had hit the the theater and destroyed it. And then they, they moved it to Missouri and then they sort of scrapped the whole tornado idea, which I think is better for it. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, it would be so devastating even more devastating if we never got to see this play that they spent so much time working on that got wiped out by a tornado i also would have loved to see i know that they so many i mean you could probably cut three different kinds of movies with the amount of footage that they had but i know um all the ribbing that fred willard was giving eugene levy's character apparently there was uh 
originally a scene where Eugene Levy's Dennis character lashes out and kind of kind of loses it on him, you know, and like hauls off on him, like kind of screams at him for for mocking him so much throughout the movie. But I think they cut that out because it just seemed a little bit too much. It, it would change the tone. And not that I like that Eugene Levy's Dr. Pearl character is getting, you know, poked all the time by Ron. But if he would have lashed out, it would have just it would have changed something and it would have taken the innocence out of it. And it would have legitimized the fact that Ron's totally a jerk, you know. <laughs> and I love that we see that Ron and Sheila end up in Los Angeles and they're sort of extraing in commercials and stuff. They're still trying to make it. They're yep. trying to live that dream. Can we make mention real quickly of the time period um, of this film that it fits perfectly with Catherine O'Hara's bangs in this movie that are hairsprayed straight up and very rigid and very thin. I love that addition. I don't know if that was her or whose decision that was, but man, those bangs are brilliant. I had those bangs in fifth grade. Just going to say that. If you have the DVD, there are some deleted scenes on there to check out. You know, I didn't do a search on YouTube to see if any of that's available there, but... Some of it is. I don't think all of the scenes are, but there are definitely two numbers that were cut out of the musical um, Nothing Ever Happens in Blaine, which is an addendum to the number we do see in the movie Nothing Ever Happens on Mars. And then a huge company number that was a pretty great epic song called That Bulging River. (laughs) That Bulging River. Come on. But you see so much work that they put into just these musical numbers and that had to be cut out for time. Completely nothing wrong with them at all. They're they're great scenes. All of the scenes really that are available on the DVD that were cut out. It's kind of one of those things you're like, this would have been totally fine in the movie. There's a real sad one between Ron and Sheila, but it adds more depth to the um, crappiness of their marriage and kind of how Ron is, well, how Sheila's pretty unhappy. There is something about this movie when I put it on, just that brisk, it's like 84 minute running time. There's so few movies that, that move this quick, but that give you such a full story and a full set of characters. And I forget how fast this movie is. I mean, it's just so short. Yeah. And yeah. before I know it, we're already into, you know, watching Red, White, and Blaine. I think it's a, a really great decision that they chose. You know, let's keep this really fast paced, the story moving. You know, as long as the audience understands the characters, then let's move on and let's, you know, get to the play. I completely agree with you. The pace of this movie is wonderful. And something like this could lag if a viewer wasn't in it, some type of pseudo documentary style type of thing. But it really doesn't. I think it's a wonderful movie to put on with any type of audience or any time of day, really. I know we always talk about like Sunday movies. This is an any type of movie. Totally an any time movie and also a movie that I think it enhances it upon multiple viewings because no matter how many times I watch this movie, I always I catch something new because a lot of the humor is so quick and you know, you might be watching one character and, and completely miss what another character is doing. And that happens a lot with ensemble pieces, but especially because everybody's functioning for comedy. Um, you know, it's easy to miss uh, just a reaction that somebody gives. I'm always looking for something new every time I watch it. And I also find, too, that it's hard for me to watch Waiting for Guffman and not immediately within the same week followed up with like Best in Show or Mighty Wind. 
It's really hard not to. You kind of just want to watch them all in succession. Speaking of Mighty Wind, we should probably get to our picks of the week. We'll come back for some more Waiting for Guffman and our final thoughts. But Lindsay, uh, you know, as we said, we did both guest picks, me doing Mighty Wind. But you did one, probably the guest film that I was least familiar with, but I've revisited. And it's, it's really won me over in the last week. And that's for your consideration. What can you tell me about that movie? Watching the first scene of this movie epitomizes everything it's about. We open with a section of the Betty Davis film Jezebel, and the camera shows us Catherine O'Hara's character reciting lines, word for word, with the utmost emotion one can have while also completely sucked into a performance. This must be perfection in her mind, what she strives for, and also what we return to for the final scene of For Your Consideration. The desire to make it to be iconic, to be remembered. These feelings are a throwback to Waiting for Guffman, except on a larger scale, and are meant to satirize the truths about the Hollywood movie system. Another thing that's different this time is that this movie isn't exactly the documentary-style comedy that we've been talking about with Waiting for Guffman. There's a little bit of that element, but there's always an interviewer involved. This movie made me remember Christopher Guest saying, no matter what size of a production, high school to Broadway to big-budget movies, aside from the dollar amount, everyone deals with the exact same pressures, concerns, demands, jealousies, and whatnot. Everyone has the same desire to succeed. Like many of his films, For Your Consideration takes us behind the scenes and into a world which feels so honest and relatable, even if the audience doesn't know this actual world in their daily life. Guest rekindles most of his company from previous films, but it really can't be ignored that this one really feels like Catherine O'Hara's in the spotlight. And the story's this. We're introduced to a movie production in progress, deep into filming this uber-Jewish holiday film called Home for Purim. No giant celebrities involved. These are all working actors, some fresh-faced youngins who quote, don't believe in trophies, and others who are well-seasoned and have been around the block for over 30 years. The Oscar buzz begins to swarm around the film, and what's depicted is how the actors react to the idea of being just considered for such an award. Very cleverly, guest and frequent writing partner Eugene Levy, both of whom co-star in the film, of course, decided to make this movie about the buildup of possibly getting an Oscar nomination. The absurdity that all of a sudden your entire life can change with just the mention of possibly being considered for an Oscar. This can mean everything for younger actors and also be the biggest acknowledgement for actors who've spent their entire lives struggling. I'm the first to admit that I love, love, love movies about making movies or a TV show. There's just such a brilliance which comes from intelligent writers that can point out the ridiculousness of the industry as well as actors who've really been the characters they're playing or have observed similar situations. Whether through ad-lib dialogue, side glances, pauses, moments where you can read a character without even words being spoken, the world that's created here feels so inside, and that's because it is. Alongside that, what I admire most about this film, and like all of Guest's movies, at least in my opinion, is that For Your Consideration satirizes without being negative, mean-spirited, or resentful. Even though I did read some criticism saying that it was kind of mean in some ways, but I really don't get that from this one. Aside from many laugh-out-loud moments due to this amazing cast, of course, Guest and Levy make sure that you care about these characters, just like in Waiting for Guffman. Sure, they're more 
privilege than the Guffman crew, but it doesn't mean you don't feel for them. And as often as it happens in real life, not everything works out the way you want it to. We see how actors react to criticism, praise, and the insecurity of all of that, to the writer involvement in a production and how that can massively change, the outside influence of studio bigwigs, agents, and the surrounding media involvement and tabloid journalism. It's all depicted here, from the good to the bad. But I can't help but feel... Every single bit of this film is from actual experiences. Alongside Guest and Levy and, of course, Catherine O'Hara, Henry Shearer, Parker Posey, Christopher Moynihan, and Rachel Harris are the central core to the film and the stars of the movie that's being made in the film Home for Porum. What cracks me up every time, since this is a movie about creating Oscar buzz, it's just hilarious how Home for Porum seems very un-Oscar worthy which I think has to be another comment that's being made about the industry. Supporting players continue down the line of familiar faces. Jennifer Coolidge, Fred Willard, Jane Lynch, Michael McKean, Bob Balaban, John Michael Higgins, Ed Begley Jr., and the love-it-or-hate-it movie critics. Man, Michael Hitchcock, he and Don Lake have two scenes, but Michael Hitchcock just, man, just slams it home with the two scenes that he has. Of this crew, it's probably Lynch and Willard that get me going the most every time that they're on screen, but some of Jennifer Coolidge's lines are just incredible. I don't know why she's also eating every time she's in a Christopher Guest movie. She's always eating something. After so many movies, it is still unbelievable to me that these folks can come up with such amazingly ad-libbed comic moments that can leave you on the floor. As for the lingering Oscar buzz nominations, Guest's decision to end it in the most ironic way was just absolutely perfect. I feel like it's the only appropriate way to end this movie. His films don't have the happiest of endings all the time. They're just more realistic. My heart hurts at the end of this movie. But Guest doesn't abandon the idea of maintaining reality for the sake of a rosy conclusion. In their own way, these actors at the end find their own paths, just like what we all have to do when life throws you a curveball. In the end, for your considerations, satirization of movie making and the hype world is done with such dead-on accuracy, but without a bitter, angry, or ill-willed aftertaste. I truly do adore this film. I know it's some people's, it's not their favorite, but man, I, um, I really do love it. It's up there on the list for me. Yeah, like I told you, I didn't come around to this one for a while. Um, it was your enthusiasm for this movie that made <laughs> me uh, kind of go back to it. Because I, I just kind of, I don't know, I guess I'd written it off as that Christopher Guest movie that I wasn't going to go f- go back to. But <laughs> I really enjoyed it. I, I think uh, you make a good point there, though, that I think the first time I watched it, the movie that they're in is seems so terrible that you're like, how <laughs> yeah. is this becoming noticed for Oscar buzz? And I don't yeah. think at the time I really picked up on that, that it may be the joke that there's a lot of these bad movies that <laughs> kind of get Oscar buzz going before anyone's even seen the movie just because of the caliber of the people that are in them or the story. And then once people actually start seeing it, they're like, oh, this is like an over the top sort of, you know. <laughs> bad melodrama um i gained a new appreciation for this one so thanks for going to bat for for your consideration oh yeah definitely i really want to hear about a mighty wind i went back and watched this again because actually this might have been my version of your for your consideration i i liked it it was fine Maybe it was just that it has a serious edge to it that didn't speak to me at the time 
going back and watching it after all of these years uh, left me with a completely different feel. Yeah, Mighty Wind was one that I had to watch a few times before it really sunk in with me. The first time I watched it, I honestly don't think that I liked it. One of the main reasons is because though I love all genres of music, and I I do enjoy some folk music, though I think more what would be considered modern folk, even the bands that they are parodying in A Mighty Wind are bands that I was not familiar with, you know, but I don't think that you have to know those bands to understand bands that were once popular back in the day and they're trying to get together. You could easily do an entire podcast on this movie because it's so involved. So I'll try to just shrink this all down into this tiny little pick of the week uh, moment here. But the spawn of this whole movie came from guest Harry Shearer and Michael McKean would do this group called the Folksmen where they would dress up like folk guys and had actual folk numbers. And they played this uh, on Saturday Night Live in the early 80s. They also, whenever Spinal Tap was going on tour, they would open for Spinal Tap to just kind of throw the audience off and then switch in outfits and then go back on a Spinal Tap. So this was a group that Guest had for a while, you know, and then he got the idea of like, what if we did this whole parody take on all these folk bands getting back together? So the main idea of the movie is, is that there's a big producer who produced all these folk bands in the 60s. Uh, Irving Steinblum passes away. His adult kids decide to put on this tribute concert and they're going to have these bands were popular in the 60s all get back together. Some are still playing uh, like a second generation of that band is playing, but they contact all these groups and say, hey, you know, why don't you come back together? We'll do this live concert, you know, as a tribute to my father who, you know, signed all you guys back in the day. Um, We're going to, you know, we'll do it in a town hall, uh, nice town hall we're gonna it'll be live on television like a pbs type station and so then we start seeing all these bands come together the folksmen reuniting there's also the new main street singers who are like a second generation of the main street singers and then we see uh, mitch and mickey who are my favorite in this whole ensemble played by eugene levy and Catherine o'hara not to get too much into all the different characters there's a lot i mean if you if you're familiar with christopher guest movies um it's sort of the same type deal you know he's bringing all his cast of characters that you've seen uh in his other movies kind of swapping them around in 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 different characters um with just hilarious dialogue um but you're also seeing you know this real realistic takes on people getting back together and drudging up the past and trying to get back together to put on this concert and then also preparing you know much like we see in Waiting for Guffman, and much like we see in Best in Show, a lot of the movie is them preparing to put on some sort of performance, and then at the end, the last bit of the movie is them actually putting on the performance. And much like Guffman, the the songs had to work in Mighty Wind, and they're actually like real. It's you know, it's good music, you know. So because you you have to see all these people actually perform. And not only do you are the songs good, but you also see the different styles because each band comments on like, oh, well, they're doing the poppy version of this and we do it the stripped down way version of this. So we're getting <laughs> to see the different styles and how, uh, you know, interpretation of, you know, because a lot of times folk singers would they would do the same songs or whatever, but they would do their own different interpretations. 
So you get a little bit of all of that um, mixed with the sort of zany cast of characters that we've come to know and love in Christopher Guest movies. It really is to me like a movie, again, like Waiting for Guffman and Best in Show. The more you watch it, the more you get to know the characters, the more you fall in love with it. I think I'm, you know, for your consideration is falling into that category with me. I've watched a lot of Christopher Guest over the last two weeks here when we were prepping for Waiting for Guffman. And I just have like even more appreciation for what he does and his style of filmmaking and his way of thinking on how to do comedy. It's really unique. It's really intelligent. And it's really, again, I've said this several times, this word, but very heartfelt. You know, I really feel for these characters. Also a very talented musician and composer and songwriter, which is really evident in The Mighty Wind. Yeah, I think most obviously that is the biggest thing is the musical talent behind all of the writing in A Mighty Wind is pretty wonderful. I gained such a bigger appreciation for this movie after this last rewatch. Yeah, wasn't the biggest fan when it came out, but liked it enough. And then uh, I think it was hearing Christopher Guest saying he doesn't like the word mockumentary. And then it was right after that when I watched A Mighty Wind, I saw the heart (laughs) of this movie and uh, it became something else. Yeah, these guest movies, they just, they grow on you and grow on you. All right, don't you think it's time we reveal our rankings of our favorite documentary comedies of Christopher Guest, Justin? Yeah, and there isn't a whole lot of science behind the way I did this. <laughs> uh, mainly, I was sort of chalking it up to watchability. And I always kind of rank a movie by how much I want to sit down and watch it. Like if I had these five movies in front of me, uh, which mm. ones would I want to watch the most and my various reasons for that. Um, okay. So I can go first if you like. Yeah, yeah. Well, coming in at number five, I have Christopher Guest's most current mockumentary, and that is The Mascots. And though I find this movie to be pretty funny, and I haven't seen it as much as I've seen his other films, I did watch it twice And I think that there's some great stuff in there, but there's not necessarily one central character that really ties the whole thing together that I'm kind of hanging on to. And then also, too, uh, the other four movies deal with like theater, music, uh, dogs and film, all things that I can relate to a little bit more than being a mascot on a sports team. So that comes in at number five. Uh, Number four, I have. Uh, for your consideration, which is one, uh, like I said, I've really grown to appreciate a lot more. Thanks to you, Lindsay, again. Coming in at number three, this is where um, two and three might get a little more controversial, I guess. Interesting. Okay. Okay. Number three is Best in Show. Interesting. Though I love Best in Show probably more than any of his movies, some of the characters in Best in Show are almost a little bit too grating at times. And so though I find the movie hysterical, (laughs) I do sometimes. It's like a little bit of an anxious movie to watch. Coming in at number two, Mighty Wind. I've just really grown to love this movie so much. I love the music in it. I love the character dynamics. I just think it from start to finish, it's hysterical. And then coming in at number one, um, I don't think it's a big surprise, Waiting for Guffman. Uh, (laughs) This movie is just absolutely hysterical. I I love it so much. I'm so happy that we chose uh, Waiting for Guffman as uh, our episode for the podcast. It's been really great to revisit this one so much. And honestly, it has not gotten tired the entire time. Well, what is your ranking here? Are you going from uh, five to one like I did? Yeah, yeah. 
I will concur with you on number five, uh, that being mascots. I enjoyed the film and I went into watching it feeling like apprehensive, like a new season of X-Files or something. You're like, please don't suck. Please don't suck. You, you've been gone for this long and you come back. And the beautiful thing about mascots was that I didn't have any negative feelings about it. I thought that it was entertaining. I thought that there was heart behind it. There were a few new players that had started just coming up in for your consideration. It also expanded the group of actors that Christopher Guest uses for his films. So, I mean, I I liked it. There were a lot of new things and there were a lot of new additions to the film. That Christopher Guest wasn't in it very much was kind of a bummer for me. I wanted him in it a little bit more. Out of everyone in the film, Parker Posey doesn't usually play a character like she does in this film. A little bit more serious, but still that quirky weirdness that she has in, in quite a few roles. But I love Mascots. I found it very entertaining, but it was not my favorite. Uh, coming in at number four, here's where we differ. It's going to be a mighty wind, Justin. And not that I don't love it. I've said it the whole time. I love all of Christopher Guest's films. And I, like with you, music is a giant part of my life. But when comparing to all of the other ones, the serious tone that it takes at times, and because I, you know, have had heartbreaks involving music and makes me feel a little bit too much. And sometimes I don't want to when I'm watching one of Christopher Guest's films. But it's very entertaining. Everyone's performances are wonderful and the, and the music is incredible. As for number three, it's going to be for your consideration. You've already heard me talk about how much I love this film. Uh, that one is going to have a lot of watchability for me, if not for any other reason, just being that I love films about the making of, of movies and TV shows. It's very entertaining, and I enjoy the realistic take that, that the movie has on the film industry. You know, number one and number two are real hard for me. It's such a toss-up. I see what you say about Best in Show, about having some characters that are somewhat grating. It's almost like Waiting for Guffman was the training wheels for Best in Show. Best in Show is much more polished, and everyone seems so on top of it that it's a little scary in the actors, like how good they are at embodying these characters it's also the introduction of jennifer coolidge and jane lynch it's really hard to say whether it's best in show or waiting for guffman at number two but i think i'm gonna have to just because of what came first i'm gonna have to put best in show in at number two and go waiting for guffman number one but that's that's a real hard one if you had asked me a year ago or two years ago i probably would have said best in show than waiting for guffman but the more I watched Mighty Wind, and that's how movies are, with especially Christopher Guest movies. I feel like the more I watch them, I find more things about them funny and characters yeah. that I that I like a little bit more. There's a funny story that uh, I love to tell people whenever Best in Show comes up is that I have a very good friend. She's basically family, and she's a little over 70. She's been grooming dogs for 60 years or 55 years, long time. And you would think, a longtime groomer, someone with a great sense of humor, is going to find Best in Show hilarious. She thinks it is not funny at all. She doesn't get why people think that it's funny. And it's because she's so in that world and just is just like, what? This is reality. I don't get why people are laughing. I think that that is such a funny story. And I, I get it. I totally get why it could not be funny to someone who lives that life or is familiar with 
with that world. But, you know, I think that movie's hilarious. Sort of the same feelings from a lot of rock stars at this at the time This Is Spinal Tap came out. It was yeah. too real. They didn't find the humor in it. They were like, <laughs> this is too close to realistic of what it's like of the excess mm-hmm. and the uh, ego. Mm-hmm. If we were to throw a ringer in like Spinal Tap, where would that fall? Ooh, we. I know. I, I threw you for a loop on that one. You weren't you weren't Ooh, expecting we. that one. <laughs> Gosh. It man, Spinal Tap might squeeze its way into number two. Whoa, really? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it'd be number three for me. That's one that the jokes hit really hard a lot of the time. And I feel like they're really going for it. It's a, it's a little bit edgier movie than these other ones. Yeah, I think it's way more biting for a lot of reasons. Well, there you have it. Those are our rankings. Um, if this is something that you enjoyed, listeners, please do tell us. Uh, we would definitely put together more rankings for other uh, future movies for other episodes. Oh, yeah. you know, we could come up with some yeah. of these ranks. You know, a lot of people like a rank, and I don't blame them. I, I, I enjoy <laughs> reading a ranking myself. Yeah, who doesn't? Uh, yeah. And then, uh, you know, tell us what your rankings are on the Christopher Guest movies. That's a great idea. Send us an email, comment on a yeah. post on Facebook or Instagram. Let us know. Now let's get back to business. Here's your Murray moment. Chicks dig me because I rarely wear underwear. And when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're going to come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even show. Okay, this is so something. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes, the grace, all striking. That was fun. If you don't already know, there's a ton of interconnectedness in amongst the up-and-coming comedians building a name for themselves in the 1970s. And it's quite an understatement to say that these connections in comedians who forged friendships, troops, and styles of comedy are responsible for contemporary comedy today. And while I could go into a lengthy history on the subject, I've got to stockpile these for future Murray moments. So for now, let's go back to 1977, the year the comedy album That's Not Funny, That's Sick was released. The National Lampoon's Collective had been churning away for a couple years. The empire was expanding and venturing off from the popular Lampoon magazine. Before the brand ever thought about erupting into the movie industry, they began expanding into radio, which I mentioned a little bit earlier with Christopher Guest. And that show was called the National Lampoon Radio Hour, under the helm of Lampoon madman Michael O'Donohue, though creative control soon expanded beyond him. This whole radio hour creature by itself has a massive history behind it with such names attached as John Belushi, Harold Ramis, Gilda Radner, Joe Flaherty, and the three names pertaining to this particular Murray moment, Billy Murray, Brian Doyle Murray, and Christopher Guest. And it's the Brian pop-up in Waiting for Guffman which made me think I had to just include him in this Murray moment. I absolutely love his few moments on screen in Waiting for Guffman, like... Brian's side eye that he has in pretty much every movie he's ever in. (laughs) I love the guy. 
as I spoke about in the Murray moment from episode 61 of Ace Ventura, these three also worked together via the Guerrilla Video Collective TVTV, but their roots went back even further. The National Lampoon Radio Hour was written and produced by a core group of Lampoon folks, which included Christopher Guest, who began writing, performing, and arranging musical numbers for Lampoon albums released between 72 and 74, and he later became a prominent staple for the group. In its original form, the Radio Hour ran for just over a year, from November 73 to December 74, and was broadcast on six radio stations. But a couple weeks in, the program would be cut down to a half hour because sponsors were reluctant to advertise based on the controversial nature of the Lampoon magazine and the material covered in the show. Which brings me to the album That's Not Funny, That's Sick, featuring Billy, Brian, and Christopher Guest, and two sketches involving a parody of Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You might be able to completely see Christopher Guest doing a great variation on the Mr. Rogers character, which he nails in the most expert of ways. He's so consistent with his unscripted comedy fashion, and putting his special twist on this makes it completely all his own. Let's start with Billy's track, Mr. Roberts 1. Christopher Guest, as Mr. Roberts, interviews just somebody called a bass player, which is played by Billy Murray. I feel like musicians get this humor in the sketch because it plays on the lazy bass player stereotype who's clearly only got music on the mind. A simple guy implied he's a little sloppy, lasting long into the night and sleeping into the afternoon. Justin, you think we can go to a clip real quick? I think I can make that happen. We're going to talk today to a musician, the guy who plays the bass. And you know what a bass is, don't you? Can you say that? Don't. Sure you can. Hello. How are you? You think you get somebody to give me a cup of coffee or something? You're not used to getting up early, huh? <laughs> I'm not here yet. What time do you usually get up? I usually get up when the sun is warm, like 1.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon. I like to get up around 6.30. That's insane. You're stupid. Huh? You should sleep late, man. It's just much easier on your constitution. So just two guys from completely different worlds, and the visual of what this would be if this were on video, I feel like it would be a Christopher Guest movie. Now, the second installment, Mr. Roberts 2, we find Roberts being confronted by his neighbor, played by Brian Doyle Murray. This one is perhaps the more controversial parody of the two. As Bryant is the disapproving parent and waiting for Guffman, in this sketch, he confronts Roberts about being a grown man, hanging out with kids in the neighborhood, and how he doesn't like it. You can just probably assume where this one's going. Yeah, I just want to have a word with you, Robert Scott. Hi, Mr. Heyman. How are you? How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, isn't it? Yeah, it's pretty good, except I got something on my mind. Uh, Well, anything you'd like to say, you can say to me. Well, my son, Timmy, he's been spending a lot of time at your house. Timmy's special kid. Yeah, well, frankly, I don't like him spending so much time over at your house. Timmy has to feed my fish. That's his special job. Well, he's not going to feed him anymore, because I told him not to go over to your house anymore, and I'd appreciate it if you'd stay away from him. You understand what I'm talking about? I thought you might have liked the later hosen that I made for him. No, I didn't like it. I thought it was an unusual gift for an adult man to give a child. I lined him with silk so they wouldn't chafe him. Well, right here, these are your Murray moments. Billy and Brian with Christopher Guest from the National Lampoon Radio Hour album, That's Not Funny, That's Sick. Whenever possible, I really advise you going back and listening to old comedy albums like this. You're going to find some things that are probably offensive, but... It's the time period. How many times have we said that on this podcast? You got to take that into account. It's not saying that's excusable, but just remember that. 
If you were ever a fan of comedy albums in the 90s, like Adam Sandler's, like I was, things like that just maybe wouldn't even exist without albums like these to come from the Lampoon. So I hope these little glimpses into Billy Brian and Christopher Guest brought you back to a special time in comedy and to these guys' roots. Wow, this was a really deep dive for your Murray moment for this one. <laughs> yeah, it happens sometimes. Man, there are just so many, but uh, they're hard to find sometimes. Like, you know something happened, but finding the evidence of it is uh, it's very hard. It's still, I just wish I had Bill Murray's number. I could just call him for like 10 minutes every two weeks and just ask for a little bit of clarification, you know? Yeah. Thank you so much for that Murray moment. You know I love doing them, of course. So I did look and I did find out that there was an original soundtrack released of the songs from Red, White, and Blaine. Okay. But from what I can understand, it was never released publicly. They did it as like a promotional thing when the movie came out. So it's a pretty rare and hard to find CD. So if anybody out there has a copy or can you know, knows where to find it digitally, please let us know. Where did all of those copies end up? Yeah, I would love to listen to that. Yeah, I would love to listen to that too. There's probably one on eBay for like $100. I mean, a Waiting for Guffman lunchbox goes for $200, so I can see that soundtrack being even more than that. Yeah. If anybody's hanging on to a Remains of the Day lunchbox, definitely hit us up on that one too. They make really good early Christmas presents. <laughs> Did you have any final thoughts on Guffman before we uh, close this thing out? I had one little personal note, but nothing uh, too crazy. I think we got most of the all the little behind-the-scenes tidbits that I had written down. Yeah, we, we covered so much in this movie, and I think, like watching the film, there are so many little things that you can uncover upon another rewatch and another one. I'll, I'll have 80 more things after I watch this movie again that... I'll be like, oh, man, I should have said that, too. There's just so many things in here. But there was one tiny little thing that warmed my heart, and it's I guess it's really just personal to me and anybody that was ever involved with Second City. Not that I ever was, but there's a special thanks to a woman named Joyce Sloan who was considered, like, the mother of Second City and just a overall powerhouse behind Second City. And anyway, just... A huge bigwig there and fostered every comedian that you've ever heard of to come out of Second City. Um, and I had the pleasure of meeting her twice. Um, I used to work for her brother when I lived in Chicago, Danny Koval. What's up, Danny, if you're listening? And Danny was nice enough to introduce me to Joyce. And I got to say, walking into that woman's office, it was intimidating you just walked into like this celebrity that you've never heard of, but she's completely responsible for all of the improv to ever come out of Second City. And to see her being thanked at the end of Waiting for Guffman just like really, really warmed my heart. That's awesome. Yeah. My final thought is also a tiny bit personal as well. Oh, yeah? There's a tiny part, you know, during the audition scenes uh, for Waiting for Guffman, where um, the actor Jerry Terman, he's the guy who's doing the Raging Bull audition. <laughs> yeah. After Kyle, after film school, I moved to Austin, and I worked at uh, Cable Access Television. And when I was working there, I was checking out equipment, and I was teaching some of the camera classes. 
and I uh, had the idea of a short movie about this guy whose wife has passed away and he doesn't have anything to do with his time, so he just has a cable access show where he just shows pictures of his wife and talks about her even though she's passed away. And that sounds like really depressing, and the movie is actually pretty depressing, but a way to show like what some of these shows actually do, not necessarily making fun of them, again, you know, kind of in the same yeah. vein of like how... Guffman's not making fun of his characters, but not done in a documentary style. But anyway, uh, we were auditioning people, and the we needed a, a an old man, someone who looked like they were like in their late seventies or eighties. And the guy f- who does the Raging Bull scene, he he lived in Austin, which is close to Lockhart, where they shot Waiting for Guffman, and he auditioned and got that role. We were on set talking to him about it he was like super open and was like oh yeah you know he was like I was the only one who didn't you know had like a scripted part and they told me to do this scene from Raging Bull and he said you know I was just gonna do it in my own accent my East Texas accent and he said when he did it that way they were like no this is perfect he said even when a book was being written about Christopher Guest they, they contacted him and the guy who wrote the book said oh he thought that Jerry Terman got the biggest laugh in the movie by doing the raging bull <laughs> bit. Um, and he was a really, really nice guy, a really professional actor. And he passed away several years ago. But uh, this movie has like a little personal remembrance too of a time in my life and, you know, a, a memory of Jerry, who was a super kind old man. Oh, that's really sweet. I'm so glad that you had that experience. Yeah. Oh. I should also say that my story from before, Joyce Sloan has passed away as well. I should have said that before. Rest in peace, Fred Willard, Jerry Terman, and Joyce Sloan. Man, this movie, what what happened here? We closed out the episode on something that is totally personal, and the movie is really about personal relationships that the audience has with these people that we're watching and relating to. Guffman just really evoked some emotions, didn't it? It did. It did. I'm really happy we did this movie. I hope uh, you listeners have enjoyed it. And Justin, what do we have coming up next? We're going to keep it comedy centric, but we are dipping into our favorite era of movies. And that's the the 1980s oh yeah we're gonna dip back to 1984 with the smash hit beverly hills cop we are huge eddie murphy fans around here so (laughs) we uh we can't get enough of eddie murphy so we're 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 going back to the eddie murphy well and uh (laughs) i'm looking forward to talking about beverly hills cop it never gets old talking about anything he's involved with so that's coming up next time and also please do follow us on social media please uh share us with your friends we are looking for new listeners all the time but we love our um you know regular listeners so much we can't thank you enough but if you haven't already please do find us on social media facebook instagram twitter on youtube don't push pause podcast Um, we also have a website that has all of our old episodes archived so you can see everything from episode one all the way to what's current and also find out what's coming soon there we also have a store that has tons of merch with our logo on it as well as other 
random movie. It's sort of like, you know, at the end of Waiting for Guffman when Corky's got his memorabilia stored. <laughs> it just seems like a mishmash of things for sale that are movie related. That's kind of what our website's like when you go to our store. So please go there. All that money goes to help us building a bigger and better podcast for your ears. So please go to our uh, website at don'tpushpausepodcast.com. Also, if you want to reach us for any reason, you can always get a hold of us at don'tpushpausepodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you, guys.